Revelation chapter 17. And we are going to see a tremendous number of images used here. Let's remember where this chapter sits in terms of its context. We saw in chapter 14 the prediction of the destruction of the beast representing the Roman Empire. Chapter 15 revealed the preparations being made as the seven golden bowls of wrath are given to the angels. And chapter 16 is the pouring out of that wrath as God's wrath is poured out in those seven bowls upon the beast, the destruction of the Roman Empire. Chapter 17 and 18 are the details now. We're going to receive the details about what is going to happen. How is this all going to transpire? And particularly, what is the impact going to be on the people of God? That's a really important facet of what chapter 17 is going to look at. So, let's read the chapter. And then we will uh, take it piece by piece and, and see how we do. Chapter 17. Verse 1, here's the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality, and with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose of by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. No problem, right? Whew. 
full of symbols, full of imagery, very difficult. And of course there are as many interpretations as there are books written uh, about this chapter. And I'm just going to go through what logically makes sense and I think the images uh, that we see here then will come to light as we do so. The first thing that we begin with is In verse 1, we are given this image of a great prostitute who is seated on many waters. This prostitute imagery is not new to Revelation and not new to the prophets either. Uh, Many cities have been given that same kind of designation. Talking about cities particularly because of their great immoralities, because they stand against God and they are filled with sin and iniquities and so they are described as a harlot or a a prostitute in Nineveh and Tyre, Jerusalem, just some of the cities that were given that kind of language. And that's what you see going on here as we're going to now see judgment upon the great prostitute. Notice she is sitting on many waters. It's not hard to figure out that imagery. The angel tells us what that means down in verse 15 where it says, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, they are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. That's a very important designation for us. So we're already being told who this immoral and wicked city is. It is the wicked city that is residing over or sitting over peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And as we've gone through the, this book, and as we know our first century history and the time frame of the writing of Revelation, I believe it is undoubtedly then speaking of the city of Rome itself. That is the wicked city. There is only one city in the first century that has power over nations, peoples, languages, uh, nations, multitudes. This only can possibly be Rome. And we'll see that as we go through this chapter. More details will be given to us about the woman that I believe will verify that. But keep in mind, that fits our context. What did we begin this lesson describing? Remember, chapter 16 was the seven bowls of wrath poured out against the beast, the Roman Empire. And verse 1 is now told us, now this angel says, I'm going to show Show you the judgment of the great prostitute, i.e., this is the details. Let me tell you what this judgment's going to look like. Not of a new city, not of some otherworldly city. The context has been about the beast and about Rome and its empire. And so that's what we have seen here in verse 1 is that here is this great prostitute. We'll notice her a number of times as we go through this judgment and go through this chapter. This imagery that is given here is not unusual to the Old Testament and it's certainly not unusual to what we've seen in the book of Revelation. Notice the parallels between what is described of this woman with the description of Babylon the Great back in chapter 14. Notice in chapter 17 and verse 2 that the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. This imagery of being drunk on the immorality of this great prostitute. Notice the same language to Babylon in Revelation 14 verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of of her sexual immorality. So again, we're seeing a parallel. This 
Babylon the Great, which was identified for us as the beast, the Roman Empire, here the same language is used of this great prostitute. Again, showing us that we are talking about the city of Rome. The beast is the empire, so we're just going to try to keep these two images in our mind. The beast represents the Roman Empire, and we have the prostitute then representing the city. And we'll see why that comes into play later on when we get down to in a few verses uh, toward the end here in verse 16. That'll be very important to make this distinction between city and empire. And so while at the beginning you would say, well, isn't beast and prostitute the exact same thing? Rome, Roman Empire, what's the difference? You'll see the difference when we get to the end of the chapter and why the angel wants to make this distinction. So we have Rome sitting on the beast. Rome is the central power and the beast then is her empire that she has over the provinces, over the nations, over the peoples. She sits on many waters because she rules over the kings of the earth. And so that is how our picture begins uh, in the first couple of verses. Notice then in verse 3 that we're reminded of something really important. What John is seeing is a vision, and I think it's useful that he brings us back out again. In verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. We've seen that imagery before at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. We read it in Ezekiel also. And being carried away by the spirit represents being in a vision, receiving God's message. And so here is the inspired message, the message from God. This is all a scene of vision that is being given before John. And so, as we've been reminded many times in the book of Revelation, we're not looking for literal dragons and literal prostitutes and literal beasts. We're in a vision. We're seeing symbols. Keep these things in a symbol. And so that's what this does for us in verse 3. And then describing being carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice also in verse 3 a description of the beast. We have the woman is sitting on the scarlet beast. And notice the description that this scarlet beast is full of blasphemous names and also has seven heads and ten horns. Don't forget, that's the exact same description of the first beast that we read about in Revelation chapter 13, those first ten verses. Remember, it is full of blasphemies. Remember, it has seven heads and ten horns. When we read it, remember one of those heads had received that fatal wound that had been healed. The same image here is given to us. He's reminding us, we're talking about the Roman Empire with this beast. We're going to describe its fall. The judgment, as verse 1 says, the judgment is coming upon the beast. It is coming upon the prostitute. These are the details of Rome's fall. And so that imagery that we learned in chapter 13, we're bringing it forward. It is the same beast. It's not a new beast that we have to scratch our heads and go, now what does this beast represent? The angel says, bring all that imagery forward. This is the Roman Empire in all of its power and might. Notice also the description of the woman. Verse 4. The woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Uh, 
nice that it calls her the woman there in verse 4 because it wants to drive home something to you. The women who wore purple and scarlet and wore pearls and gold and jewels like that were prostitutes. And so it's using that imagery that this woman that you're seeing is just not any old woman. She is full of immoralities. Jeremiah 4 verse 30 used the same kind of imagery when Jeremiah said, And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet and that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life as he prophesied against Jerusalem and said, you're the prostitute and why do you try to attract all this immorality from the nations? The nations hate you. They're going to destroy you, is what Jeremiah was prophesying. And so there's some similarity here as well as here is the great prostitute full of immoralities and she's dressed that way to fit the bill of who she is. She's clearly immoral in every way. And that's what the rest of verse 4 shows us. What is she holding in her hand? A golden cup full of abomination. So you just have wickedness described of this woman from top to bottom. She's called the prostitute. She's dressed like a prostitute. And she's holding sin, abominations, and wickedness in this cup in her hand. So you're just getting this imagery of complete and utter wickedness comes from her. She is full of sins. And this imagery also is not foreign to the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 51 in verse 7, speaking of Babylon, Babylon was the golden cup in the Lord's hand, making the earth drunken. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Same kind of language. Because of her sins, she holds in her cup this immorality, causing the world to commit immoralities and sins. Remember, chapter 13 told us how the beast was causing these immoralities to happen. Forcing the inhabitants of the earth to worship the beast. Forcing them into paganism, demanding that they have Caesar worship take place. And so, same imagery being given here is this prostitute, this wicked woman described as Rome. The problem is, look at how it causes the world not to worship God, but to worship itself. It is the great prostitute. And that is why you see this language of Babylon. We've noted that a few times, of fallen, fallen is Babylon. Why? Rome fits that so well, because Babylon was the city that was the world empire at its time, and it was a wicked empire, and at the same time that metaphor is then used of future worldly wicked empires as well. Notice verse 5 now. On her head was written a name, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes, and the earth's abominations. Notice it makes the connection specific. What's the name of the prostitute? Babylon the Great is on her forehead. Here's her name if you don't know it. Who is the city that is of a wicked empire? Well, it's Rome because her name is Babylon. And notice the usage of mystery. It is symbolic language. The symbolism is of how it's going to fall. The symbolism of who it is. How it is full of immoralities. Call Rome Babylon because it shows its wickedness. Call it Babylon Babylon. 
because it's going to fall just like Babylon did for its immoralities. And so that is the great mystery that is put on it. And he's going to explain the mystery in just a moment. But notice he's building this up in describing the details. Look at this scarlet beast. Look at this woman. See how she's a prostitute. See how she's full of immoralities and full of wickedness. She is Rome. And that's what verse 6 then drives home for us. And it says there, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and I marveled greatly. Remember what we were told in the bowls of wrath, not only here in verse 6, but earlier. Why is judgment coming upon this beast? Why is judgment coming upon Babylon? Because they are drunk on the blood of the saints. Because they are going to kill the Christians. Remember back in chapter 13 what we were told. There's going to be an edict and imposition that there would not be buying and selling for those who did not have the mark of the beast, who did not worship the emperors, who did not worship the empire. They would not be allowed to buy or sell. They would be killed for the cause of Christ, for their faithfulness. And back in chapter 16, we saw that. And when the angel pours out the third bowl, the explanation of the judgment upon the empire is explained. Verse 6 of chapter 16, For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. They are receiving recompense for killing the people of God. And so we have moved through these chapters seeing here's what's going to happen. Remember how chapter 12 began. I wish we could just go for like two hours right now, but we'll just go recap from 12 on. Remember chapter 12. The dragon is trying to destroy God's purposes. Tries to kill the child? Uh Uh-uh. Unsuccessful. The remnant? Unsuccessful. So what are we left with at the end of chapter 12? The dragon is going to make war with the children of God and is those who are the followers of Jesus. Chapter 13 unveils how is Satan doing that? The beast. The Roman Empire is how Satan is going to make war with the people of God and try to kill the Christians. And so chapter 13 warns them, Christians, you're going to be slain. You're going to die. Chapter 14 shows them victorious. They are on Mount Zion. They're with the Lamb. Though you die physically, you are going to be held safe in the arms of God. You will be spiritually secure with them. Chapter 15, what are we told? God is bringing judgment on that beast for killing the people of God. And so this fits exactly in the flow of what is going on. Is Here's the angel saying, this prostitute full of immoralities and wickedness She is being judged. Her name is Babylon the Great. Why? Because she's killing the people of God. And that's what verse 6 tells us. And that's why this judgment must happen. So that's our first six verses. So far, so good, right? So far, so good, right? (laughs) Here we go. All right. Notice in verse 7, the angel says, Now why do you marvel? Well, I don't know. That was pretty ferocious information that you gave right there. And here's the angel going, Come on, John. What's the big deal? That was was a piece of cake, right? And now what is interesting is the angel says, So what I'm going to do is explain all of this to you. Because... 
That wasn't hard enough. The explanation gets pretty hard as well. But this is really important to understand because he tells us here, why do you marvel? I tell you the, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Very important. This information given by the angel is not concealing the information. As much as this is really hard pictures, the angel says, I'm explaining it to you. Let me tell you what all this means. And for me, it seems to only get worse as he gives the explanation. But it is important for us to recognize this is the answer to what this imagery is all about. And so we have to follow along and remember that this isn't intended for us to walk away and go, I have no idea what he was getting out there. He just concealed that up for us. No, no. Got the book of Revelation. He's explaining. He's explaining this mystery of the woman and the beast. So here we go. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to the destruction. The beast is described again at the end of verse 8. It was and is not and is to come. So I think the beast here is, as we've mentioned before, it's the same beast. We saw the scarlet beast, seven heads, ten horns. It is the Roman Empire. It's the beast of chapter 13, those first ten verses. Here now is a description about it. For this description to be was, is not, but will be again, or is to come, I believe is very much parallel to chapter 13, where we were given a description about the heads of that beast. Remember, here is this amazing beast with seven heads. It's doing great, doing fine, it's ruling over the earth. One of the heads takes a fatal wound. And so much so that it appears that it's going to falter and collapse, apparently. But then that fatal wound heals. And we remember when we studied that, we thought, that's really a strange thing. Because how do you say you have a fatal wound and then it's not fatal? Somehow, the fatal wound heals. It comes back to life, causing all of the world to marvel at the beast and to worship it because of that. I think that's the same imagery here. It was in power. It is not this fatal wound. It appears that it's about to collapse, but it's only going to come back all the stronger. Just like the imagery of the heads. It has the seven heads. It takes the fatal wound. It's about to collapse. No, no, it heals of that fatal wound and continues on. And we saw that as imagery of the Roman Empire to remind us that this kind of was the flow of what the empire would do. It would become strong It wasn't totally against the Christians early on. It appears it's going to collapse. And in chapter 13, we suggested the possibility that maybe that is talking about the year of 69 AD, the year of the four emperors. Civil war is going on. Things are battling out and taking place all throughout the empire. Perhaps looking at that, once that is all settled, the throne then becomes stabilized And it is after that then that the ferociousness of the beast really takes place. And the persecution of the Christians from the Roman end really begins to fire up. In the first century, not so much, but that's what was going to come. And that's what chapter 13 was prophesying for us. And so I think that is the picture is that this is to come is describing the renewed strength that the Roman Empire is going to have to lead this persecution against God's people. It was, it exists, it's strong, it rules over the earth. 
It is not. It currently appears to be collapsing at this very moment, but it's not going to collapse. It is to rise again. And it will go to destruction. It will be even more ferocious than ever before as it will lead to persecution against the people of God. I'm going to mention that persecution a lot because I would like for you in your minds to just keep in, keep in, in your thoughts. That has been one of the focal points of all of these chapters. From chapter 12 on has been about the persecution of the people of God. While we've been dazzled by the dragon and by the beast and the second beast who's called the false prophet and Zion and all that, the important theme in all of that is Satan's trying to kill the people of God. You're going to die. But it's okay because you're going to be on Zion. Don't forget that because this is the details, remember. This is the explanation of the judgment of of Rome and the judgment of the empire. So we're going to read language of going to destruction. And I think it is talking about this persecution of what it's going to do against the people of God as these chapters have predicted up to this point. Okay? So far so good, except then we get to verse 9. This calls for the mind with wisdom. Alright. Spiritual perception needed. We saw this at the end of chapter 13, right? Calling for the mind of wisdom. We saw 666. Calling for the mind of wisdom. Have spiritual perception. Have spiritual insight. Similarly, I think he's calling for the same thing here. The seven heads that we saw. We have seven heads and ten horns. We saw that in chapter 13, remember? And when we read that, we mentioned... Heads and horns, all of those things representing the authority and power and might that this beast has. To have all of these horns and to have all of these heads, the symbols of seven and ten, very important and shows us this power and the strength of this beast. What is fascinating now is that the angel comes back in at this moment and says, but I want you to know something more about this beast. The seven heads there, those seven hills are the seven heads, okay? And so that's interesting explanation of the seven heads. These seven hills or seven mountains, same word either way, that's the picture of things that are, that are going on about this beast. What is fascinating about that initial description is that pretty much everybody understands the city of Rome is the city that sits on seven hills. That's a pretty well-known historical reference. In fact, I've got a quote for you uh, here that says, Most scholars have no doubt that the seven hills refer refer to the seven hills of Rome and that the seven kings to seven successive emperors of that nation. And Mounts even states, There is little doubt that a first century reader would understand this reference in any way other than as a reference to Rome. The city built on seven hills. And that's from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. And I think that is dead on right. When you start speaking of a city that sits on seven hills, you're immediately thinking about the city of Rome. That's known historically. Literature described Rome in seven hills. Even some of their coins had that on them as well to describe uh, the city of Rome. And so we immediately then I think are validated in our study so far. Who has the great prostitute been? 
The great prostitute is the one who sits on many waters. What does that mean? Well, the waters represent nations, languages, and peoples. Well, Rome is over nations, languages, and peoples. Now we're told it's also then this imagery of sitting on seven hills. This is the city of Rome yet again. But then we're given a little bit more, and that's what's even more fascinating, with this woman who is seated then on the seven hills, describing for us then that this is the city of Rome. It fits for us everything that we've read in context up to this point, but now he's going to give us some more details. And this is where things, I think, get very interesting, is that he does not stop the description right here and say, okay, I, I just want to make sure you have Rome in mind. We're talking about the city of Rome. It's wicked. It's going to be killing the Christians. I'm calling for the faithfulness of the people of God. Now he's going to give us some more details when he says there in verse 9 the seven heads are the seven hills or seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There is our prostitute. Here is Rome. But then verse 10 they are also seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The challenge that lays before us is then, okay, how do we understand the symbol of the seven heads being seven kings? If that was the end of the description... If the angel had said, not only is this woman the one who sits on the seven hills, there are also seven kings, period. End of story, and let's move right on. I would think that we would have to understand the seven kings in a symbolic sense. And that would be very easy to do. We've noticed that seven is a number of perfection, right? We've seen seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven bowls. It means the sum totality. Everything is included. It is a perfect number. And if we were to say seven kings, we would take, have the takeaway of we're talking about all the emperors. We're talking about all the kings that Rome ever would have. They're all in view here as this description is given. The problem is there's more details. He doesn't stop right there. He then marches forward and says, now I want you to know something. Five kings have fallen. And one is. And the other's not yet come. And when he does come, he's going to remain for a little while. And the next verse goes on and speaks of the eighth being like the seventh. And starts talking about Each of these kings. I submit to you, what we have done in our study of the book of Revelation is we have been adamant that every number is a symbol. We have taken every single number symbolically throughout the book except in one instance. At the very beginning, we took the seven churches of Asia as actual seven churches. Why did we do that? Because they were named. The text forced us to go into the details. It didn't just say to the seven churches and move right along. It stopped and went into the details and said, and they're named Ephesus, and there's Thyatira, and Sardis, and he named them all, which told us it's not just symbolic of all the churches. There were seven actual churches that this letter was designated to. In the same way, by counting the seven kings and not leaving it just as there are seven kings we are forced to see that there is some sort of literal counting 
That is demanded of us. If He just wants us to know generically that we're talking about emperors, you would leave it at that figure, seven kings. But then you give us details. Five have fallen, one is, one's yet to come. And when He comes, He's only going to remain for a little while. And after that, there's going to be an eighth. You're telling us something. You're not just saying there's going to be a bunch of emperors. There's something more being told to us. And I would ask you the question, how could we understand that as a symbol? What would it mean for the angel to come along and say, alright, the seven kings represents all the emperors. Five have fallen. So what would we say? Almost two-thirds have already fallen. And now there's going to be one, and what does the one represent? And there's going to be one more, what does that represent? And what does the eighth represent? The symbolism doesn't work. And that's what I want you to see. Especially consider, it's not like Rome is toward the end of its time of rule, that you would say, okay, five of fallen means it's getting close to falling. No, we're still in the first century and we know there's three more centuries yet to go. It's in the early stages, not in the late stages. So I am submitting to you that this is the second time where the text is demanding for us to count the emperors and to make a determination based on those emperors something that is going on that the angel is trying to explain. So here's a little history for you. Here are the rulers over the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. We're going to do some work with all of this for the moment. Notice I have 12 up there because I'm just going to take on all of the possibilities of the things that we can deal with in this. We have Julius Caesar and he makes himself dictator from 48 to 44 B.C. Uh, If you're famous with your English literature or any of that kind of history, you'll know the Ides of March and all the things that happened like that. There's a significant time gap between Julius and Augustus. Julius is not an emperor. He's a dictator. He's not over the empire. He's over a republic. And then we come to Augustus, who is an emperor, and at that time you have a Roman Empire. And then from there we have the successive emperors that ruled from that time all the way to Domitian. And I stopped at Domitian just because I think that is the relevant emperors to our study tonight. What is really interesting is that you have three that are very quick. Remember we mentioned the year of the four emperors. There you see them. Galba starts at the end of 68 and gets killed in 69. Otho gets killed in 69. Vitellius commits suicide in 69. And Vespasian takes over in 69. A little bit of chaos. Can you imagine if we had four presidents in one year? A little bit of upheaval going on. A little bit of civil war, and I'm saying a little bit sarcastically, things are going nuts in the Roman Empire during that year. And so we have then before us the big question. So it, here it says, five have fallen, one is, one's yet to come. If we take the count like this, as we have before us, the five have fallen would mean that we would go from Julius to Claudius, and that the one is would be Nero, the one that is yet to come would be Galba. Now, the the problem with Galba, Otho, and Vitellius is that they're pretty well historically irrelevant. Yes, they were emperors. Yes, they did rule for a very quick time. Yes, they were approved by the Roman Senate. But they don't have any importance whatsoever. And so the big question is, well, how are we to do this counting with all of these guys? Because right now, the way the list is, 
It doesn't make a lot of sense to say, all right, Nero is, and the one to come is Galba. So what? (laughs) He's not going to do anything. He's going to get killed real quick, and he's not going to have any impact on the Christians or have any impact on world affairs in the slightest. There is, I think, a lot of reasons to exclude Julius from the count. And I think most people, when they do the count, do exclude him for, for a multiplicity of reasons. I think, one, he's a dictator. He's not an emperor. He is historically different. Though historians later on did call him an emperor and talking about the rule uh, of the Roman Empire, Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius call Augustus the first emperor, and I think that is the right way to count it. Second of all, along with that, there's a 17-year time gap between Julius and Augustus. It's not like Julius inaugurated the reign of kings. No, remember, they killed Julius because they didn't like the whole idea of dictators or emperors, and the Senate began to rule again after that 17 years of time passed by before Augustus then becomes emperor. And then I would also consider for us, if Julius is counted, there's a lot of other dictators that ruled before Julius. Why wouldn't we count them also, like Sola, like Maris? Why wouldn't we put them in the list of dictators who had a time in in the sunlight over Rome? I think these are reasons to remove Julius from the list. When we do that, our updated list then comes to this. And so then the five have fallen would be down to Nero. The one who is, uh, is, is Galba, and one to come would be Otho. Perhaps that's what this is saying. I'll grant that possibility. I don't think so. But I'll grant the possibility. But I still contend that these three guys, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, are really not relevant. They're not important. They don't have any play in historical affairs, no impact on Christians whatsoever. One of them, I think it's Otho, but I have to go double-check. I think Otho ruled for three months. I mean, not a lot going on. He barely got the seat warm before he got killed, and Vitellius takes over. And so I think these three need to be excluded from the list. And I will give you some reasons why I think they ought to. First of all, as I've already mentioned, their reigns hardly had any impact, and some historians suggest not many would have known that he was emperor. Coins were already pressed for them, most certainly, but it's not like the empire turned on CNN and found out, oh yeah, by the way, we've already learned uh, that he's been ruling for all this time and now he's already dead. Things didn't work that way. This time was short. It is the year of the four emperors. Three of those four are murdered or commit suicide under what seems to be the hand of Vespasian, who then stabilizes the throne. Their reigns are inconsequential because of the civil war that took place during that time. You have these emperors all battling with their legions. You have to try to envision a whole different world. It's not like you have like what we have. Well, we nominate him. You won to be emperor because you beat out all the other contenders by war. And so you have civil war taking place throughout the empire at that time. And the final kicker that I want to suggest to you is I think the prophet Daniel tells us to exclude those three from the count. Let me show you the text that I think is relevant. In Daniel 7, 
We have before us this fourth terrifying beast. Remember that the fourth terrifying beast is described with all of these horns, and these horns are ten horns, and they are describing the rulers. They're describing the kings, and you'll see that here. In Daniel 7, verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth of the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head. Just stop there for a minute. Remember our fourth beast is the same beast in Revelation 13, same beast in Revelation 17. This is the Roman Empire being described. And continuing then, and about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed to be greater than its companions. It is interesting that Daniel speaks of a horn taking out three others and saying, all right, there's going to be three and they're going to be set aside because this other one is stronger than those three. I think that seems to be the picture because that's what Vespasian does. He establishes his reign during the year of the four emperors and he takes that throne victoriously by overthrowing all the other claimants. That's why we have Vitellius committing suicide. That's why Otho's murdered, is that they are all taken out of the way so Vespasian can take the throne. If we remove those three from the count, things, I think, become clear. Five have fallen. That takes us out to Nero. The one who is, then, would be Vespasian, who has currently just established himself as ruler. The one who is yet to come, notice is Titus, remember what we're told about him, he'll only reign for a little while. And there's the short duration of his reign. He only reigns from 79 to 81. And then we're told about the eighth there in verse, uh, verse 11, he belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction, describing the wicked ways and the evil that Domitian was going to bring about. Probably not. We don't have, we've mentioned in our class, we don't have historical evidence of a global persecution, an empire-wide persecution by Domitian, but we do have accounts that he did persecute Christians in the way that Nero did, in localized ways, not as an empire-wide policy, but there in the city of Rome and those who stood against him. This seems to be the most likely scenario of what this is trying to describe for us. Five emperors have already gone. These five important ones. We don't care about these other three who were here for a moment and gone the next. Vespasian is the one that is. He's set all of these others aside. He's just now established his rule. There's going to be one to yet to come. It's his son Titus. Did you know that Titus is the one who finished the job in the destruction of Jerusalem? Vespasian started it. He goes back to Rome and be, anoints himself as emperor by putting down these three. And now sends his son Titus back who finished the job, but he is, uh, only will be emperor for a short time, pointing to Domitian and the work and the evil that he was going to accomplish. With this, this fits a lot of things that we've talked about. We talked about the more the fatal wound that the beast suffered. And then it became healed. And we talked about, I think that's the year of the four emperors. And it looked like the empire was going to collapse. But it doesn't. It continues on. Here we are then validated with that number yet again. If Vespasian is the one who is, we're now still in 69 AD. And in my opinion, this is the best way to date the book. This is the first time that I have found anything in the book of Revelation that says, 
Here's when the book was written. Count off the five that have fallen and count the one that is. Even if we want to keep the three, the Galba, Otho, and Vitalius, the dating of the book remains the same. Then you have five that have fallen to Nero. The one who is would be Galba, which would put us at 68 AD. And so we're right in the very same ballpark if we want to keep the three or take the three out. I think the three are removed because... They have no impact to Christianity whatsoever. Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian most certainly do in their roles in terms of the persecution of the Christians with Domitian and Vespasian and Titus in their role of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why they're important to the count and what they're going to do. All right? And we're not even done yet. That was still the easy part. Look at the next verse. Verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. And they're to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. I submit to you this sounds like that second beast. The false prophet that we read about. Its authority comes from the first beast. Same thing is described here about this. these ten, ten horns. They're these ten kings. They receive their authority and rule with, with the beast. And so I believe the same imagery is in place. The false prophet or that second beast is the same as these ten horns. The localities and provinces that ruled within the Roman Empire compelling the people to worship Caesar, to participate in this pagan worship, to get them to turn away from God. Uh, as uh, Johnson puts in his book on page 560, he says the mul- calls it the multiplicity of sovereignties in confederacy that enhance the power of the beast. Talking about all the nations, peoples, and powers that were within the Roman Empire. They are the ones that are in view here. Now this is what makes the story interesting. And this is why all of this imagery is so important. Verse 13, they're of one mind. Okay, so the beast and the so the city of Rome, its rulers, its provinces, the whole empire are of one mind. They hand their power to the beast. They're working for the beast. Verse 14, they're making war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. They're making war on the lamb. Remember what we've seen. The Christians are being persecuted. But the Lamb is going to win. Verse 14, the Lamb will conquer. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Verse 15 reminds us we're talking about Rome. She is the prostitute is seated on many waters. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now watch what happens in verse 16. The ten horns you saw, and I submit to you that's the provinces and localities of the Roman Empire that consisted of what the empire was. They and the beast, so that's our empire, they're going to hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. They are going to turn against the city of Rome. And that is historically accurate. If you got my email that I sent out to you, I told you on Tuesday... This is Tuesday at 5 o'clock on National Geographic. There's a show that's When Rome Ruled. And it's going to say that very point. The city of Rome fell when the empire turned against it and went to war against itself. And I thought that was fascinating. As I watched that, I went... Well, that's what was told to us right here, is that the way Rome fell, yes, you have the barbarians, you have the Goths, you have the Parthians and all of them, but it all began because the empire turned against itself first. 
I hope you'll watch that program. I thought that was very fascinating that historians speak of that, that it fell from within because of its immorality. That fits the Daniel prophecy. Don't have time to show it to you or go there. Go back to Daniel 2, verse 43. Remember what was the weakness of that that imagery, that fourth empire, because it was mixed with clay and iron, and it would not hold together. It was going to crumble within itself. And so even Daniel prophesied that as well. Verse 17, God's the cause. You see it there? Why did this happen? Because God put it in their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Here is God saying, I caused this to happen. It was time for Rome to fall, and here's how it will fall. It will turn against itself, but God puts a little reminder. I did that. I'm the one who made them do that. I put that in their hearts, and so they will turn against the city of Rome and cause its destruction. And in case we weren't sure who the woman was, he tells us one more time in verse 18, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This becomes unavoidable. The woman is described as sitting over many waters. Nations, peoples, languages. The woman has been described as sitting on seven hills. The consistent imagery of Rome. Now we're told the woman has dominion over the kings of the earth. New Revised Standard rules over the kings of the earth. New American Standard reigns over the kings of the earth. And perhaps my favorite, the Holman Christian Standard, has an empire over the kings of the earth. This is Rome. This woman represents Rome. She is going to be destroyed. She is the only city that rules over all the kings of the earth. My final lesson to you then I think is really fascinating in reading all that as it reminds us God is involved in the affairs of this world. That little key there in verse 17 is fascinating. God is involved in the affairs of this world. We should not believe that God is not involved or active in the rise of fallen nations or does not care about the events of the earth. And what I'd like for you to consider is God said in that verse, I did that. I caused that to happen. There was nothing miraculous about that. There was nothing that you would go historically and say, well, clearly God stepped in and did some, whew, you know, things falling from the sky, burning sulfur and fire and wipe. No. But God says, I did it. And it reminds us that our God is active, that our God is alive, and that He continues to rule over the affairs of this world. And we must pray and give glory to God because He still does so to this day. We will pray that we will act for His glory, that this nation will act for His glory and purpose. And that is our very reminder to us that God causes the rise and fall. He will use nations to His purposes as He pleases, and He will dispense of them when He needs to. And all will be judged at any given time.